from KIOS in Omaha and Exorbin Creative, you are listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I get to nerd out about Paul Thomas Anderson with author Adam Naiman, whose new book, Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks, is available wherever you get your books. Anderson's not as rat trap tight as the Coens. He's not a genius the way that they are. It's a different kind of filmmaking. He's a little bit messy sometimes, and he's a little bit slovenly, not in his craft, but sometimes in his dramaturgy. Naaman took a little while to warm up to Anderson, and he has a complicated view of the qualities of the films themselves. So it's not just a hero worship sort of conversation, which makes it definitely more interesting and fascinating, especially if you are into movies. Paul Thomas Anderson's films include There Will Be Blood, Phantom Thread, and Magnolia, among others. Stick around for that conversation right here on Riverside Chats. We'll be back after this quick break. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today is a movie nerd out day, which if you know anything about me outside of hosting this show, you probably know this is very, very exciting for me. Today I'm talking with author and critic Adam Naiman. Naiman has a new book out called Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks, which goes through the entire filmography of Paul Thomas Anderson, filmmaker of classics. I guess we can call them modern classics. He probably would not agree with me. I don't know. I didn't ask him about this specifically. But movies like There Will Be Blood, Phantom Thread, Magnolia, Boogie Nights, and one of my all-time... I mean, I like all these a lot, but the movie I go back to the most from him that's really definitely not become a classic is Inherent Vice. Paul Thomas Anderson, though, he's one of those enigmas. He's one of those auteurs who's doing it his own way, writing, directing, producing. So it's a fascinating exploration The book itself approaches Anderson's filmography in an unusual way, which we talk about in the conversation. So this is definitely a great conversation. If you haven't heard about Paul Thomas Anderson, hopefully it inspires you to check that out. Check out the book. If you already are a fan, I think you'll really, really enjoy this. So it's kind of a long one, so I'm not going to ramble too much here at the start. Let me just introduce you here to the conversation itself. This is my conversation with Adam Naiman, author of the new book, Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks, which is available everywhere right now. This is the podcast version of the conversation. So there are some swear words and there is some discussion of sexual content in the movies. If you would like the radio appropriate version, that is also available in your feed. Check for that in the parentheses after the title. All right, here's the conversation. Enjoy. I want to start, actually, maybe it's a downer, I don't know, but it's a crazy time, it's a crazy year, and I feel like we can't quite avoid this, but as somebody who is, you know, involved in the profession, involved in the overall <laughs> industry, what, what's going to happen with movies? Are they, is, the, is the form dead? Are we just going to have miniseries instead, or what, what's your take on where things are going? A colleague of mine tweeted today that Prestige TV was a PSYOP for a psyop because people wouldn't answer their emails during phone screenings, which during film screenings, you know, which I I, I thought was pretty funny. Um, I think that for people who like the movie theater and who've grown up going to movie theater and generationally I'm 39, so I'm not exactly, you know, the greatest generation, but I'm pretty used to habitual film going and the writing has been on the wall for a while now that that's less important you know, that, that, that in terms of revenue stream and in terms of where creators are going and in terms of how things are being distributed and at what, uh, you know, where distribution and financing intersects with places like Netflix, you know, mm-hmm. theaters were always sort of becoming um, seen more as kind of like a 
problematic or troublesome or a link in the chain that some people would sort of seek to remove. I think that in terms of things made at the absolute highest budget end, there's no way for those things to keep being made without theaters. So as long as in theory, a movie like Tenet or the Avengers exist, and this is not in the favor of Tenet or against it, it's just a fact, you know, as long as a movie like Tenet gets made, people are going to want to put it in theaters to the point where its distributor tried to put it into the theater in the middle of a pandemic, which is deeply craven and awful, but also speaks to the fact that you can't recoup that kind of investment streaming. You know, it's also interesting, though, that a movie like The Irishman didn't cost as much as Tenet. But I mean, for 150 million bucks, you can't really recoup investment on that either without theaters, except Netflix's model doesn't show box office. It doesn't show revenue. So they're not really playing by the same rules that Hollywood history always had. You've always had to at some point show your work. Right. And be like this movie made X amount of money. And, you know, based on how much it cost and how much it costs to advertise it, there's like some tangible profit or loss. Content's going to keep getting made, but even the word content kind of makes me sick. And the question of whether Netflix, which has now put out films in the last three years by many of the most important directors in the world, Scorsese, the, the Coens, Alfonso Cuaron, you know, you know, Steven Soderbergh, whether that's going to be the way of all filmmaking, all mid budget low budget filmmaking is going to be designed for tv or for streaming and only the biggest blockbusters ever will go to theaters uh, i know i'm giving you a longer answer than you expected but i'm happy for it yeah <laughs> it's 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 like in a weird way a return to the 1950s where movie theaters were imperiled by the invention of television and there wasn't a pandemic and there wasn't that larger context of something else happening, but the movies had to find a way to adapt to give people something they couldn't get just staying home and watching TV. And TV tried to copy movies by making TV versions of those movies or licensing those movies for TV. So the content's always going to be made. The question of through which format and with te which technology we receive it is very circumstantial. If we're going to be driven indoors for other reasons, not just pertaining to pandemic, but pertaining to the environment or just maybe a paranoia about ever going outside again after all this, I think movie theaters are in huge trouble. And we're both kind of smiling while I'm saying this, but it's in a very gallows smiling kind of way because it's heartbreaking to me because I am used to going to movie theaters. However, you want to tell someone who's 15 years old right now that the world is over because they don't have the memory of spending seven bucks five nights a week to go see something forgettable, you know, in a crappy theater with bad sound and bad projection. I don't think they're going to start crying, you know, mm -hmm. it's all just based on your experience of stuff. Yeah, well, I was I was thinking even as uh, the Queen's Gambit seems to be the new thing everyone's watching, and you know it's got yeah. a singular director, singular writer, and it it felt watching it like the kind of thing that would have been a movie ten years ago, uh, but now we're all kind of happy to just watch it as a miniseries while we're stuck at home. Well, there's a line by Godard. I'm, I don't want to misphrase it. I don't. I don't have it googled in front of me, but it's always stayed with me. It's you know, you you raise your eyes to the movie screen, and I think the 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 flip side to that is you kind of lower your eyes to the TV. Or I know someone else whose postulation is you know, if I'm watching something and I bother turning the light off, that means it's cinema, whether it's a TV show or not. You know, or if you have something on in the background, I mean, we're now at a point where you can literally put Godard on in the background if you want. You know, or you can turn off all the lights and really pay attention to Emily in Paris if you want. I mean, that's always people's taste. Mm -hmm. But I do think that this year has meant 
lots and lots and lots of viewing for professional reasons to pass time. Uh, I'm married. I have a three-year-old. Can't watch that much TV. But after seven or eight o'clock at night, I mean, what is there to do? I mean, that would be under normal circumstances too. But especially during all this time, there's a lot of viewing, right? And, uh, you know, I still believe that watching a great film on, on streaming platform, you're still watching that film. But I'm starting to lose that sense of context mm-hmm. and counterpoint. And I was just ragging on Tenet 10 minutes, five minutes ago, but Tenet's the one film since March that I've seen in a movie theater. And it was for professional reasons. I went to a press screening in Toronto to see it, to write about it for The Ringer. And it was a weird experience. The experience itself was more memorable than the movie. The film makes no sense. And I've long since forgotten it and have nothing to say about it. But, um, you know, I'm kind of clinging to the memory of that experience, like sitting while the lights go down and whatever else. I know qualitatively it's really not that different. It's a seat and a screen, and I can do that at home. And it's not like this is old-fashioned reel-to-reel projection either. It's a Mm -hmm. digital presentation of Tenet on an IMAX screen. But it felt special, and I'm kind of feeling sad even just thinking about it because it's so different than the flow of viewing that we've all had for the last 10 months. Have you, have you been to a theater since March? I haven't, I've been invited to, and I, I just don't feel completely comfortable. And I, I, as much as I'd love to, I worry that just in the current context, I won't be able to appreciate it the same way. Although I relate to so much of what you're talking about, just that reverence for the experience that there's, there's no excuse for me to pull my phone out or be distracted. And just to, to give something my full attention is absolutely something I miss. And I hope I can do again in a safe way. Well, and to maybe, and by going to the theater, try and continue that idea that movies occupy a special space in, in cultural life, a space in cultural life that is related to, but distinct from television or related to, but distinct from online and and the internet. But again, it's all about, it's a generational thing because, you know, try and make someone who's 15 years old feel heartbroken about this. They're just going to have to take your word for it. Mm-hmm as opposed to feeling it. I've noticed that too with young people. It, it, it kind of blows my mind even to talk to someone who's younger and just some of the, I've talked to people who just say, yeah, I don't really like movies. I don't watch movies. And just, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe that's just, a, I hope it's not becoming an antiquated thing, but it's just, it's crazy to me because I can't imagine growing up and people not liking the concept of movies, you know, just that there's even enough content options out there to, to just have that not be one of the main things that you do on the weekend. Well, like if you throw your hands up and believe that all progress by nature is positive, you know, it's like we're progressing past the need for two hour narratives. Narratives are becoming more multifaceted and multidirectional. They're swifter in accordance with the way we process things. You know, attention span works differently because there was a lot of moralizing and complaining about the invention of movies themselves at the turn of the century. It's a vulgar art. You know, it was vulgarizing the attention span necessary for theater or the discipline necessary for literature. I mean, I you always try and think generously. You're like, what's the angriest I ever was at a, as a teenager at my parents' unwillingness to accept something, you know, a, a song or a movie or a comic book? And then you're like, you know, I don't want to be that. Hmm. Uh, it's not about wanting to be the cool parent. It's wanting to be like, well, you know, there's a there's a teleology to these things. There's a progress to these things. You don't want to be feel like reactionary or clinging on to what's yours. On the other hand, what's ours is ours. You know, we're not going to just let it go kind of without a fight. But I think the movies have been swamped by nostalgia for themselves pretty much since they started. It's a deeply nostalgic medium because it's not live. 
it's always capturing something past and you know not happening in real time the way tv and even radio before it or concurrently did but it's funny too because i know we're eventually going to segue into paul thomas anderson and it's the new year's scene in boogie nights where the guy shows up and he's like look i want to make porn with you but i want you to shoot it on video and not on film and burt reynolds is jack horner is like no it's not porn if it's not on film you know you're you're making content i'm making art and you watch that scene as a viewer and you sort of go i mean on the one hand is he fucking kidding i mean it's porn i mean what difference does it make but it's also the technology actually influences the content influences the artistry the motives of the people making it and that real that scene even when paul thomas anderson was however young he was when he made boogie nights in his mid-20s that's such an old there's such an old uh preservationist mentality to that you know yeah. which is the old hollywood of the 70s was killed by the sequel franchise vhs mentality of the 80s and whether it's porn or whether it's kids movies or whatever else should always be celluloid and not digital and uh, 30 years later, he's still shooting on, or 25 years later, he's still obsessively shooting on celluloid. Well, and he gets to, he gets to do that because he's a big deal. Right. Well, as far as the idea that it's always been a nostalgic medium, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson, I, I think there's a nostalgia for movies that don't exist all over his movies, right? For the yeah. things that he grew up with, whether it's Robert Altman or Scorsese movies or whatever else yeah. he, you know, what formed him as an artist. Yeah, there is. And again, that frame of reference is specific to him but there is also a big enough and i think multi-generational enough group of film critics and film sort of culture participants the ones who were there the ones who heard about it firsthand from the ones who were there like one professional generation down and then you know groups of people who engage with history it just so happens i think that anderson comes out of and fetishizes the most fetishizable and nostalgic period in a way, which is the new Hollywood of the seventies, where you get all the rhetoric about independence and rebelliousness. There is still a studio system in place. You know, there is still a kind of an assembly line approach to movie making, but you get to be the wrench in the system, except you're not making movies that wreck the system. You're making jaws, you know, you're, you're making Nashville. Like you're still making great stuff. Mm -hmm. I think Anderson and a lot of those 90s directors, Wes Anderson, Sofia Coppola, David Fincher, to greater or lesser degrees, romanticize that same thing and draw from that same group of movies. But Tarantino was the first one of them and the one, I think, more than any of them who didn't just lean into the nostalgia, but was also like, I'm going to take these things and just truly make them mine, like not homage, but like reinvention. And maybe people will mistake it for being original. That was the pernicious danger of Pulp Fiction because it didn't quite explain what all of its references were. You had a lot of kids like me who were 13 who were like, oh shit, someone just invented something. Oh my God, he invented all this. And you had to have some responsible critics be like, you should probably watch Godard. You should probably watch Sergio Leone and you should probably watch Ringo Lamb and you should probably not watch so much Quentin Tarantino. I never thought Anderson was as appropriative as Tarantino was but he was also less original than tarantino at first i think it took him a while to find that same originality in his voice and now i think he's inestimably superior to tarantino but that's my <laughs> that's my take well let's i want to start uh as far as talking about the 70s starting about uh even the the influence of the french new wave and the concept of the auteur and i want to talk about altman for a second because i i found i mean i, I think i 
I don't know if I'd seen a lot of Altman growing up. It wasn't really something that was part of the, the culture of my film watching. But uh, the local art house theater here did a retrospective where they played some of the big heavy hitters like, you know, Nashville, McCabe and Mrs. Yeah. Miller, MASH, the big ones. And uh, after that, I uh, I took it on myself to try to watch every Altman movie because, you know, my mind was sort of blown over and over again by the... the how, that... how, 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 how'd that go? <laughs> Not great. I still don't think I've fully finished. I got, uh, yeah. I got through almost all... I probably have five or six left, but... Uh, just, I mean, as a filmmaker in the seventies, he's got so many, there's, there's like six or seven just amazing movies that just, you know, blow my mind every time I watch them. I love them. But then after that, you know, you kind of get this, the, he's obviously been extremely prolific his entire career, but he strikes me as a very different kind of filmmaker from what Paul Thomas Anderson's tried to be the whole time. And in part because, uh, you know, as prolific as he is, Altman never really seemed to be much of a perfectionist and it didn't seem like he was entirely clear what he was even going for in a lot of the movies. He was just going out there and trying something every time. And even with that, it didn't, you know, like Paul Thomas Anderson feels like somebody who's very intentional about every element of the filmmaking. And I think Altman is to some extent, but I wanted to hear your take on what is it about Altman that you think uh, Paul Thomas Anderson responded so much to, and where do you see him fitting into well, the, the influence? I'll make, I'll make one last little sideways swipe at Tarantino who again a great filmmaker in his way before answering your question which is I remember seeing Kill Bill and it opens in giant letters with the fourth film by Quentin Tarantino mm -hmm. so it's not just the possessive like John Carpenter's Escape from New York or John Carpenter's The Thing or John Carpenter's They Live all of which are great movies because John Carpenter is great but um, this fourth film by and there's this self-joking aspect to that mm -hmm. of ownership but it's also that idea of building your own mystery and mythology, you know, and and I think that you're right that Anderson, maybe not as ostentatiously as Tarantino, because he was never much of a public presence, the space in between the movies, especially after Heart Eight and Boogie Nights within a year of each other, after Magnolia, too, is like, well, to take years in between these things and build them up. And not just in a perfectionist way, but like these movies are events, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, the Coens, who I've also written a book about, I think are a little less, not just ostentatiously possessive they don't need to say it's a movie by them because you can tell within one second of any of their movies that it's them mm -hmm. but they also work pretty consistently and they're not so precious about taking years between movies but the real heir to altman is soderbergh who just tries anything mm -hmm. yeah. right all genres all styles running times formats figure something out with technology he rides that for a while he finds some actors he likes he does that he pays the bills by making effortlessly successful hollywood movies better than people who would try and make them mm -hmm. i think it's so funny that the movies soderbergh makes that are supposed to be the tossed off ones like the hollywood the, the oceans movies are often the best things he makes i actually think they're better than his more maverick experiments but i appreciate the maverick experiments mm -hmm. and he's a bit more of a perfectionist than altman and that he's such a gearhead and a tech head but he's like Altman in that he'll just try stuff. And I think Altman had that wonderful flavor of trying. And the part of Altman that I think Anderson responds to the most is the big, messy, unvarnished humanity of certain of his films. But it's also a matter of how you look at them. I know that one of the ways that people of a certain critical persuasion would take Anderson down at the beginning was to say, well, he's no Altman. And what they meant by that was that he didn't have the same depth of feeling or the same humanism that Altman had but if you look at Altman's movies and like you there's a bunch of them that blow my mind especially in the 70s he's often a real prick to his characters and a really kind of nasty cynical piece of work a critic like Pauline Kael didn't see that 
or she or she found a way the way she did with everything to turn that back around on itself and say well don't you see this is evidence of true humanism and true compassion but Allman was a bitter guy he had his reasons to be industrially and personally but you know like Sam Peckinpah and a lot of those guys who came out of tv you know he had a real chip on his shoulder about the movies and about the industry I think that what Anderson re responds to in Altman is some of the softness that still manages to come through, some of the sweetness and the, the, the affection for certain kinds of marginal people, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think that if you were to ask Anderson about his favorite Altman films, I mean, I can't answer that, but the panoramic aspect of a Nashville mm -hmm. or the panoramic aspect of a uh, Shortcuts, there's obviously something in the size of that that Anderson likes. And uh, he obviously liked some of Altman's actors because the whole first movement of his career is tethered to Philip Baker Hall, who Altman gave his one starring role. A career supporting actor gets one lead in an Altman film. And that's where we get Sydney in Heart Eight 15 years later, 10 years later. Well, but the, I mean, so the, the scope I get, but I mean, Altman's able to make these sort of epic movies that really don't feel epic as you watch them, you know? They feel Sometimes. Like yeah. Yeah. Like I, Nashville, I remember I, I saw Nashville after I saw Magnolia. And so I, I already was thinking like, okay, so this is going to be, they're going to be similar types of movies and they're drastically different in a lot of ways in terms of like, I would say the energy primarily is very different in them, even though I can see some parallels. But so, I mean, uh, when Paul Thomas Anderson's putting together some of his works, I mean, I think you, you write about how it took you a little bit to sort of respond to it. It almost feels like his energy has gotten more closer. It's gotten closer. I feel to sort of like the mellowness you get from some of those older Altman movies as his actual form and construction has gotten further away from, you know, the, like the Magnolia Boogie Nights comparison, I feel like actually is less Altman like than something like inherent vice feels closer to Altman yeah. to me. I, I, I'd agree with that read and mellowness is an interesting word. Cause I mean, you're right. It's just also, there's sometimes a, uh, I guess a, a corollary to that to that mellowness is um, almost a kind of dreaminess or an openness, which for some people immediately scans as frustrating. You know, hmm. I mean, a movie like The Master, the Altman didn't really make a movie like The Master. I mean, the, the Altman movie that's the most like The Master is something like the Images, which isn't like The Master at all. It's just an art film. It's very arty. Hmm. I think when Altman tried on that kind of art film aesthetic, it felt like what it was, which is like I'm trying on a costume. Mm -hmm. I'd say the same thing for Soderbergh sometimes when he makes like Bubble or or Schizopolis. The thing about The Master is oddly, I think that it doesn't feel like a put on at all. I think in a weird way, Anderson is finding in that movie his really, really best tip top, best foot forward form of expression, which doesn't mean that the earlier movies are bad or that he was wrong to make them the way he did. But something happened to me with Punch Drunk Love and then Better in There Will Be Blood and Brilliantly in The Master where he found that spaciousness, ellipticism, a kind of leaving some stuff out, making the movie big enough that you could fill it up and then leaving a certain amount of stuff out or being really judicious, curating the weird shit you leave in. Uh, there it doesn't feel like he's off experimenting in a corner until he works something out. I think he's found himself as a filmmaker. And I think that in The Master and in Phantom Thread, in both of those cases, it's not that he can't get better and you don't make pronouncements that a guy has peaked, but it's like you make two movies at that level. That's pretty amazing to me. And if he makes more of them, then we're going to have to start having an even more celebratory conversation about this filmmaker's career. You maybe start talking about him the way that 
people insisted he would never be talked about in comparison to his heroes. Because I think if you're talking about Boogie Nights and Magnolia, you're talking about a really talented imitator. And that comes with youth. And it's not that he's not in those movies. But now we are not looking at an imitator. Even if you hate him, he's not an imitator. He's something else. So does it scare you then to hear that this next one he's working on, uh, people are saying it's going to be kind of a return to the the sort of big ensemble type of Magnolia with some of the same studio heads. Is is there worry that he's going to regress now that he's finally gotten to a point where you fully appreciate no, I think No, I think it'll be an interesting visitation from a different depth of his career, a different duration. In, and plus, he has never really made a movie about adolescence. He's made a movie about arrested adolescence which I think is in a lot of his movies. He's had children in certain of his films. There's children and prepubescent children are significant in Magnolia. And to some extent there will be blood. I mean, definitely Boogie Nights, the main character is a 17 year old piece of gold, but the whole point is that he's in a community of adults relatively, right? Adult meaning adult film, but also Dirk is amidst grownups. He's never really made a movie about the world of teenagers. And that's kind of a rite of passage for a lot of American directors maybe not in the first half of the century when no one made or saw movies about teenagers but certainly since the 50s nick ray george lucas richard linklater you know you can make your own canon of people whoever you want who've made teenage movies and Mm -hmm. a coming of age fable sounds pretty good i would also say considering that the master was advanced discussed as quote a world war ii drama uh, we don't know what this movie is going to actually be or look like Mm -hmm. you know People have kind of, the rumor is that it's kind of dazed and confused And I'm like, well, dazed and confused, my favorite Linklater movie. So go for it. If you're just joining us, I am nerding out today with Adam Naiman, whose new book, Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks, tracks the filmography of Paul Thomas Anderson, one of the last auteurs in cinema today. We'll be back with the rest of the conversation after this break. If you're a fan of Riverside Chats and want to see the show not only continue but expand in new spin-off shows including a film club, a book club, and a news roundup, please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash riversidechats. For as low as just $1 a month, you get access to exclusive audio as well as our full backlog of episodes. Our most recent 50 are always free. Older than that goes behind the paywall. So you get that plus exclusive content over at patreon.com slash riversidechats. Please consider becoming a patron today. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I am having a great time talking about Paul Thomas Anderson, the filmmaker behind There Will Be Blood, Phantom Thread, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, and probably my personal favorite, Inherent Vice. I'm talking with my guest, Adam Naiman, who is the author of a new book called Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks, which is available wherever you get your books and goes through every single film Paul Thomas Anderson has made and tries to understand them, to probe them, to talk to people involved with them. It's a great in-depth exploration of one of the last auteurs in American cinema. Here's the rest of our conversation. So in your book, you didn't go in the order that he made them in. You no. switched it up. And I, I like this framing of There Will Be Blood as kind of like a creation myth for the world that Anderson was going to explore. And if I'm saying, if I'm maybe framing that incorrectly, feel free to correct me there. But uh, No, no. I, I'm, I'm curious what exactly that means, because we've, we've talked about the humanism and the, the warmth that is sort of inherent to his movies, or at least his better ones, seem to embrace that and find that in ways that are unique to him. 
but there will be blood. I don't see a whole lot of warmth. That's a cynical creation. No. St- I mean, usually the creation story is that's your basis for, uh, you know, like you can find all of the, the morality, the meaning all comes from it. And, uh, although it's, it, it doesn't seem, uh, you know, it, it seems like all the themes are very relevant still, uh, to exactly what he was sort of exploring there. But what, what does it mean for that to be a creation myth to you? Well, it's a creation myth of a bad father, but a bad father who tries his best up to a point and then circumstance you could argue is his fault. I mean, when HW is goes deaf, is that, is that his dad's fault? I mean, it kind of is because it's his prospecting, it's his oil drilling, but it's an accident, you know, and he's a man of a certain period who on the one hand makes a very unconventional choice to adopt this kid without a wife, without a partner to take on this dead colleague's son. But it's also very self-serving because it's a way of gaining people's trust and presenting himself as something he's not, not just presenting himself as a family man and a father, but I don't know, maybe presenting himself as straight, depending on how you read the movie. I mean, how can a guy be gay if he has a son, right? Especially in the early part of the movie. I mean, I'm, I'm going deep into the film here. I'm not trying to go away from your question, but I think that humanity and the tenderness of it and the frailty and the sadness of it is very much part of there will be blood. It just is built around a character who fights to repress that so much because that's his source of strength is to not show any weakness, mm. even when faced with God, who he seems to believe is a superstition and a show. And I would argue maybe the movie tips its hand by agreeing with him. You know, that movie's really informed by coming out in 2007 after seven years of Bush and the Iraq war and these debates about the religious right that seem almost quaint now in the context of Trump, but aren't quaint. They're at the root of how Trump got elected in the first fucking place. You know I mean? I'm a Canadian. I'm not going to lecture Americans <laughs> about their country, but Trump didn't invent anything, you know, and the, there will be blood when it came out was hugely read as this Bush era allegory, not that Daniel Plainview is Bush, but that this American battle between capital and religion I mean, in a way, the point of the movie seems to be that that stuff hadn't worked itself out yet. Later on, they'd have no problem getting along. But in this formative space, it's a battle for control between those forces. I think that as an origin myth for Anderson's film, it's about films about bad dads, entrepreneurship, you know, an attempt to, as one character in The Master says, dominate your environment. And I also think it's the beginning of a connection to history that his best movies dig into. Because I think that Master, There Will Be Blood and Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread gains so much from being rooted to history history, whereas Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Hard Eight, which are good movies, are more about film history. Or in Boogie Nights, I guess, adult film history. But they seem fully made up of other movies, whereas the later ones have allusions and references, but they're not the main texture, if that makes sense. Well, so as an allegory, it almost feels like the master has aged really well uh, to American politics as well, right? I mean, yeah. I think Anderson, he he figured something out that I think it's tough for me to wrap my mind around, which is the the type of people who lead cults, unless you're really in that cult, or I guess you're just in the right mindset to be convinced by it, they're really not that persuasive. Uh, like it is... <laughs> 
it's tough to like i remember the first time i watched the master i'm thinking like this guy's actually much more uh, pathetic i thought he would uh, draw me in more i thought i'd feel the sway of it and instead uh you know I, i'm sympathetic to elements of it and i think philip seymour hoffman gives him a lot of depth but it, uh anderson seemed to realize the same thing that i i am still realizing as i watch these like true crime documentaries which is like wow i uh I, this guy's not a, not that persuasive really um no but the moment that he emerges in there's a such a flip side to the prosperity of this post-war Eisenhower era. And the movie gets at it so smartly with Freddie becoming a photographer, right? Where he's taking the photos in the mall. It's like 10 seconds out of the movie. But it's all these <coughs> smiling, handsome, well-manicured faces. And that's not him. Mm. He's come home from the war. I mean, he seems to have lived through war before he went to war because he's got this Gothic family history. He's not purely broken by the battlefield. He's a bit damaged to begin with. But he doesn't fit. And so if he doesn't fit into the prosperous mold and he doesn't fit with women, literally can't fit himself into a woman. The whole movie is about a guy who wants to have sex. I mean, he can't do it. His performance isn't there. He's flaccid because of his alcoholism. You know, he, he's, 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 he's trying for something. And so why not subservient to this bizarre authoritarian framework run by a guy who talks a good game? You know, right. it's the same. It's the same way that the spiel in Magnolia is really stupid, but mm -hmm. lonely, damaged people flock to it because the lonely, damaged person in charge of it has convinced himself this is his way to get his life together. Anderson's really interested in these kind of con men, showmen figures to varying degrees, and there's a huge connection between Magnolia and the Master in that sense. Not least of all that the guy who plays him in Magnolia is Captain Scientology <laughs> before bridging into Hoffman playing the part in the Master. But I think that what's great in the Master, too, is that Freddy sees that Dodd is not that persuasive, and he never really buys the reincarnation stuff. He's just happy to have a Master. He's happy to have someone who'll take him when they're both in jail side by side. And Dodd does one of those great things. Hoffman was so good in this movie at doing this where all his calm, articulate stuff falls away and he just has this like shitty Midwestern accent and swearing at people and stuff. <laughs> and he says to Freddie, he's like, you piece of shit. Who likes you except for me? Who <laughs> likes you except for me? And uh, that's kind of it. Well, that, I think yeah. that's that's partially why I think it's it's that's a good way to contextualize a lot of where the world has gone after that movie came out, right? Is uh, <laughs> maybe that is the appeal? People just want to master more than they actually care about the message at a certain point, right? Well, yeah, and and there's also the the I mean, it's it's an endlessly interesting movie, but the suggestion that the power behind the throne there is actually female, and that the reason Dodd is so insistent on being Freddy's master, whether it's intellectually or morally or sexually, is that he's so subservient to his own wife, who gives him the Lady Macbeth hand job in the mirror and is like, "Look, you can do whatever you want, but not with this guy. Mm -hmm. Stop." drinking don't keep them around whatever else i mean there's a real vibe in the master of like you know women spoil all the fun the boys just want to roll around on the front lawn together and she she won't have it because mm -hmm. she's a mean mom or a you know an angry wife but that movie is also so full of just these women clustering like a constellation around freddie and he kind of wants to stick it in every single one of them which is very horny teenager kind of behavior and in the end that's the happy ending of the movie which is to say it's a pretty, people have said it's a pretty banal ending. And I'm like, that's right. You know, he really wanted to get laid. 
But when it cuts back to him with the woman on the beach, you get the sense that this is not a safe haven or a homecoming. This is an eternally unfulfilled need. Mm -hmm. I think Anderson's really good in different ways and not too precious. He's funny about it. He's very good at yearning and people who really, really want something. And I think that makes his movies very identifiable. His movies never are filled with people who have stuff sorted out. None of his characters ever have stuff sorted out. There is no completion. There is no satisfaction or fulfillment or satiety to any of the people who he makes movies about. They just want. And you could say that's the essence of conflict, but it's a character type that I think he's really good at. It seems like Phantom Thread would be the closest he gets to, at least they kind of figure out what works for them. They do. But what's funny too, is that she's openly defined by want. She's this like furtive European post-war refugee. Who's like, yes, I would like to live in your house and marry you and have your stuff. I mean, it's under the guise of romance, but it's very mercenary and resourceful. And if love enters into it, it's a weirdly radical postulation where she's not a feminist. Like she doesn't want to be, be the house of Woodcock. She kind of just wants him to like not be a dick 10% of the time. <laughs> just what I, I mean, when I've interviewed Vicky Kreeps about the movie, we've laughed about this, that, you know, her, she loves Reynolds and she's mesmerized by him. And, you know, he's this demanding man and there's a romance in that and being dominated is kind of a turn on, but it's also just like, dude, just don't be like that all the time. If you can just, you know, sit on it for like, you know, a couple days a month, it's okay. So in that movie, you have one character who's very defined by need and one who pretends he has no need. Mm. And then eventually they kind of compromise. And it's a wonderfully romantic movie and very conventional. It's very conventionally monogamous movie. It just takes such a perverse winding road to get there. And it's a great movie about marriage in that sense. Now, another. I'm going to go back to what I was saying before, which is that, I don't know, the, the Trump era has made me, not that I didn't like the movies in the first place, but it's made me appreciate some of them differently. And I wonder if Inherent Vice would have been appreciated more if it came out now. I mean, people appreciate it, but it didn't seem to move the culture in any sort of meaningful way. And maybe that's just pinching. Yeah, it was, it was, it was never going to. It's a, it's, a, it's a niche indulgence. And that's not writing it off as a movie. I mean... I have a great amount of admiration for it because I think both the fidelity of it is impressive. And I think the things he adds are very interesting. I think they're significant, even if they're not, it's, it's, um, I mean, for me, it's like his no country for old men in the sense that you have huge reverence towards this source text. If you squint, he's kind of just copied the book, but he hasn't. And the things that he puts in it, they're not perverse. They're not changing it for the sake of it. I think he personalizes it to him i think he finds ways to make it fit and sync and flow with his other work without undermining the material but even something like that scene at the end of the movie with doc and bigfoot where the hippie and the cop become each other's mirror and it's an empathetic two-way mirror where it's not just that you know we make fun of bigfoot for kind of being a shitty guy and, and wishing that he was more free and liberated and wanting what doc has but sort of just this tragedy that even the authoritarian civil liberties violating cop is subordinate to a larger system that could care less about him and he's sad about it he aches about it that's an interesting scene in a post-trump yeah. <laughs> moment too the sad, sad ass cop and that incredible moment which is totally about the reagan 80s so i don't want to over read it in terms of trump but just the moment where doc goes to give the heroin back to the golden fang and it's the mom and the daughter in the station wagon mm -hmm. He's like, so what's it like working for the Golden Fang? And you're like, 
again, the <clears throat> the dangerous illicitness of drug deals becoming completely urbanized and domesticized. I mean, that's the 80s, yeah. you know? And he's alive to history, I think, Anderson, in ways that are smart, that are not, it's not that they're not in Pynchon's novel, they're the substance of Pynchon's novel, but he finds a way to express them himself instead well, of copying. It, it almost, I mean, that movie functions for me. Uh, it's like I can dock Joaquin Phoenix's character in that movie and just him watching the way that culture's moving, the things that people are drawn to, the sort of, uh, you know, the traps that they make for themselves. It, it felt like, you know, my reaction to watching even The Master and just like my disillusionment with Philip Seymour Hoffman, but, you know, just watching all of it happen and trying to figure out what is it that draws everybody to him. I like that the next movie he makes, they almost work together in that sense where it's like, uh, this is the flip side of, you have the person who's completely drawn into everything, who's drawn into finding that master, and then you have the one who's sort of disconnected, but he's still trying to find his own thing. But just the amount of confusion about the world and the, the construction of just endless sort of corruption, no matter how dig you deep, it's not like you can get to like, oh, here's the bad guy. We can solve this thing. You know, it's just you know, the corruption of culture is this yeah. this void that he looks into. And I feel like that is a very relatable feeling. I guess you maybe have to get to that point in your life, but uh, that feels universal, even though Pynchon makes it kind of complicated and dense. Well, well Pynchon uses under the paving stones, the beach and her advice is like under the paving stones of the beach. And then also there's some more paving stone, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, the, 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 they literally pave paradise at one point in that movie and put up a dentist's office or, a, or, or whatever. I mean, it's very cynical in that sense. And his change to the ending is not a change, but it's a change, which is that Doc is driving in the fog with Shasta in the book. He's not, but in the movie, he's maybe not either because the whole movie is about the space that this old lady, his ex old lady takes up. And I don't know if she's really with him. She's the woman on the beach again from the master. Is he with her? Is she, is she not? Is he in a real space? Is he in a fantasy space? He makes movies that are open enough. And it's not about the shell game of moving things around and saying, well, these movies are open and vacuous. Therefore they must be good. I'm a big believer that there's two kinds of ambiguity in narrative movie making, which is the kind that you impose because you've got nothing to say or the kind that you arrive at sequentially or collectively because the things that you're trying to make movies about are complicated or the things you're trying to make movies about are sort of unknowable. I mean, this is why I admire the Coens so much is a lot of people think that their films impose that question mark in a really mechanized way. And I don't think so. I think most of the time when they're good, the movies arrive at that because what they're making movies about are complicated. Anderson's not as rat trap tight as the Coens. He's not a genius the way that they are. It's a different kind of, filmmaking he's a little bit messy sometimes and he's a little bit slovenly not in his craft but sometimes in his dramaturgy you know like uh, ken jones once wrote that he's great at how movies feel on top but what they're made of underneath sometimes he kind of fails at and i think what i love about the master and inherent vice and phantom thread to an extent is they just yank that stuff that movies are made of out of not that they're all surface and no feeling they just they connect differently Dave, he weaves a different kind of texture between what's going on in these movies. And that's his thing. He's not copying someone else to do this. He has arrived at a way of writing and editing these movies that I think is really novel. And I would, I would, I would really disagree with anyone who sort of says he's still eating other filmmakers leftovers because he's not. Do you think that he's kind of a dying breed? I mean, is the, the auteur who actually can get a budget, uh, is that a thing going forward or are we seeing the end of it here? 
I mean, it's interesting. And you're, I, I don't mean this in response to you using the word, because I think you used the word correctly, but it's an interesting thing to talk about what an auteur actually is. Because the Anderson version of an auteur is a singer-songwriter, hmm. right? And there's different kinds of writer-directors, because there's a lot of writer-directors who are not writing scripts that express deep, ineffable, personal things. I mean, John Carpenter wrote his scripts. I'm not saying that they're impersonal, but he wrote them because he's like, I'm going to tell my story my way. I mean, there's all different kinds, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way, a more classical auteur now would be a David Fincher who doesn't write any of his own films and kind of gets hooked up with studios and signs output deals and does assignments and then imposes his personality in the work itself instead of writing it from whole cloth. Anderson's more like an Altman, not that Altman wrote all his own films. Or Scorsese, not that Scorsese wrote all his own films, but especially with Scorsese, like this palpable, burning, personal storytelling. Except unlike those guys, Anderson has not gone and made a Cape Fear or a Popeye, you know? I don't know if he is ever going to bridge into that territory. I mean, even David Fincher was offered Spider-Man 3, even if he turned it down, you know, uh, Soderbergh making Ocean's Eleven, it doesn't feel like a superhero franchise, but it is, you know. This isn't putting Anderson against these guys or saying he's better. It's just he really seems pretty inviolate in the sense of, like, he's not going to do something someone else hires him for. And there's a stubbornness and a narcissism and a privilege to that, like a rich kid who grew up in Hollywood. and But also, you know, it's kind of cool that we're probably never going to you know, have someone be like, well, Paul Thomas Anderson has joined the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, this year alone, Chloe Zhao, who made The Rider in Nomadland, who's pretty talented, you know, she's got a Marvel movie coming. Barry Jenkins, who made Moonlight, is doing The Lion King uh, for, for, for Disney. I mean, that's insane. You well, know? They got I mean, is it is that because they need that or, I mean, like for money? I mean, is it like they what, need to put yeah, food on the table? But my question is, what does pay the bills mean? And I'm not, I like Barry Jenkins. I mean, he's a nice guy and he's he's a good filmmaker. I like Beale Street a lot. This is not denigrating him as an artist or Chloe Zhao, though I think Nomadland is overrated. But like, what does pay the bills mean? I mean, I'm, I'm literally asking. I don't know if pay the bills means that the alternatives are nothing or a $200 million superhero movie i'm not making and i'm this isn't a moral thing that i'm saying i mean i'm a big fan of ben wheatley and he just made a bad rebecca movie for netflix and now he's doing the meg too i mean it happens to filmmakers of all kinds but like what does pay the bills mean uh what does working with different size budgets mean i mean it's always funny to me when david fincher is like i make small movies and you're like that's ridiculous you work with ben affleck and brad pitt but you know budget wise aside from benjamin button which was monstrously expensive his movies are kind of small so he pays the bills i'm not worried about you know how david fincher's living these days so yeah why make the lion king why make a marvel movie well i, I guess part of what i read into that is the death of the mid-budget feature is probably disillusioning to a lot of these people like your barry jenkins uh it seems like he would love to flourish in getting the kinds of budgets that Paul Thomas Anderson could get. And I don't I don't know if you can do that. I mean, maybe under a streaming service, maybe there's a possibility for it. But I mean, at the same time, when I think about like uh, just experimentation, don't you think Altman would have loved to pick like wouldn't he love to just do Spider-Man three because he hadn't done it? Already? Well, he did when he made Popeye and it was a disaster. I mean, yeah. And I like Popeye. I mean, by disaster, I'm talking about how it's perceived. The thing about Anderson is that. It also has to do with his reputation and perception. Like publishing a book about him has taught me this. 
it is not a small or obscure thing to write a book about Paul Thomas Anderson and the world does not need to be informed of his existence. You are not going to, in film circles or general culture circles or culture page circles, be like, hey, have you guys heard of this guy? I mean, this is like a known commodity. Within the larger stratum, this is a fairly marginal filmmaker who makes pretty marginal movies. Boogie Nights is kind of a dorm room poster podcast type movie. That's not meant as an insult to podcasters or to movies. It's just, it kind of has that currency. But I wouldn't say it's at the level of a Big Lebowski or at the level of a Pulp Fiction or even at the level of a Boondock Saints. You know, it's not. So in a, in a way, he's overexposed and over-discussed and analyzed and maybe even over-celebrated in a big, lavish, illustrated, critical monograph like this doesn't stop that. But, you know, still talking about director-driven auteur cinema, which is kind of small business, which is why when people are like, oh, what does Paul Thomas Anderson have to complain about? I'm like, well, he's not really complaining. He did all his complaining at the beginning where he seemed to think at 24 he deserved final cut on three-hour movies by big studios, which is the height of arrogance. But Tarantino made that all possible because hmm. the second Pulp Fiction came out, everybody, whether you ran a studio or saw a movie, were like, oh, you know, that works. Let's have uh, some swearing and a soundtrack and something vaguely fetishistic about movies from another period. And this can literally make a lot of money. The Coens never made money the way Tarantino did. Nobody making indie brand and American movies did. Soderbergh was super content with sex lies and videotape to be like a huge fish in a kind of small pond. I don't know if this is too far off topic for what no, you're no, asking. No, no, but, I'm interested. You know, I mean, Tarantino was the guy who has moved the goalposts now for what reasonably is considered mainstream entertainment. I like once upon a time in Hollywood. It's not that I don't like it, but I was sitting watching going, this is playing in like 4,000 theaters. And like 40% of this movie is talking about like TV Westerns yeah. in really detailed ways. And there's like 15 year olds lining up to see this probably in Japan. I'm like, how did that happen? How did this filmmaker with Pulp Fiction move the goalposts for what is kind of commercially viable at a blockbuster level? How does a movie like The Hateful Eight get a wide release and make $300 million? Have you seen that movie? It's not about it being good or bad. It's just how is that a hit? Do, do you have answers to these questions? How, how no, does he do that? But it's, but, it's, but it's all what I kind of frame this question about the future of movies and about the legacy of auteurism in, which is like, yeah, a movie like Paul Thomas, Paul Thomas, he shoots the works when he makes the master. It's a $25 million period piece about Scientology that plays at the Venice Film Festival. Like it's not nothing, but it's still pretty small, mm -hmm. you know? And yet I admire him for probably not taking Disney's call. It's not about being better than the other people. It's not a moral thing and it's not a talent thing. It's just, it's kind of nice. And I think that that's what's kind of at stake in the career of a filmmaker like that. Not that he's living hand to mouth or that these are movies that are really like fighting the good fight politically. It's just that they, they seem to be a, a very high level, but a level he's happy to kind of stay at because that's where the artistic freedom is. I'll tell you what, too. I don't think he would work for Netflix because I think the knowledge that the film would be primarily for streaming would in the same way as Christopher Nolan sort of be seen to go back to Boogie Nights and the film versus video thing. I think it would be the wrong, the wrong look for a guy who, who, who is so chivalrous towards the seventies 
to make a movie for Netflix. Well, but it's interesting because then on top of that, he he hasn't found a studio home. You know, like uh, Tarantino was, you know, with Miramax, Weinstein's. Um, Anderson jumps around and it seems like part of that is a result of the fact that he's not a huge box office juggernaut. Although I'm sure sure the movies end up doing okay in the long run because of his, you know, his brand. Well, they, 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 that's just it. They do okay, but they're also budgeted at such a level that, that they are going to do okay. I've wondered what it would look like for him to make something even as outsized as Benjamin Button, which is not, which is such an interesting example of a special effects film because the whole point of the special effects is that they're invisible mm-hmm. or that they're kind of human scale. I mean, when you pay $200 million to make the Avengers, it's like, look, there's an Avenger. That costs money. There's a whole bunch of Avengers. It's obviously expensive. Those aren't real people. They're green. You know, mm-hmm. that's 200 million bucks. I mean, Benjamin Button's all about one character, really, and these impossible gradations of realism. That it's so funny too because I, I like that film. But ten years later, all people say about it is like, "Yeah, it looks like shit." It's like, well, you know, in two thousand and nine, this was thirteen Oscar nominations and people <laughs> comparing them to Orson Welles, and now we're just like, "Ah, it looks like shit." But I, I, I wonder if uh, if Anderson would ever attempt not that exact story, right? But something that size. Wasn't there talk of him doing a Pinocchio movie with Robert Downey Jr. at some point? Well, they all they all want to make Pinocchio. It's yeah. disastrous. Spielberg put the Pinocchio music in Close Encounters, and everyone's like, I want to make Pinocchio. <laughs> and we're going to get Guillermo del Toro making Pinocchio, which is redundant yeah. to me. I mean, he, <laughs> he, he doesn't need to do this. But yeah, I mean, I'm glad Anderson's not doing it. I mean, we all have wish lists for what we'd like to see certain filmmakers do. And that's what the thing about Anderson is. He's kind of fulfilled the wish list. It's like he did Upton Sinclair. He did... Thomas Pynchon, he remade Rebecca before they actually remade Rebecca. Like, these are all pretty cool. And I think him doing a, a high school movie would be would be super cool as well. Well, we are running out of time here. So before I let you go, let me just ask, what's the best place people can go to find your book and then everything you're working on? I mean, the book is orderable through any number of online booksellers. I'm not going to tell people to avoid Amazon because that's silly, but just to say there's places other than Amazon. I mean, if you go to the Abrams site, you can search it and my Cohen brothers book together. And I'm pretty findable in terms of regular reviewing at the ringer, um, which we just wrote about Mank. And uh, I write for and treasure the work I do for a Canadian film journal called Cinemascope. I'm based in Toronto. If your readers or your viewers or listeners didn't know that, uh, which is where my, I guess, Canadian accent comes from. I don't know if you think I have one. I can't tell. Just a little bit in the vowels, but uh, a little bit in the vowels. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, check out uh, check out Cinemascope, and uh, I I really it was a great chat. And like that flew by, man. I looked up. I was like, oh, we've still got forty minutes left, but no, we don't. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me. Adam Naiman's new book, Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks, is available wherever you get your books. Check that out along with his great book on the filmography of the Coen Brothers, and he's just written a bunch of great things, whether in book or online, whether it's a review a meditation, any of that. I think he's a great writer and I really had a great time talking to him. Riverside Chance is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, although I've substituted most of that today for music from Paul Thomas Anderson films. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz and you can find our backlog of episodes on whatever podcast app you listen to and also the oldest ones on our Patreon. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. This has been Riverside Chance.